This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge here. Roger Kincaid off for a few more days. If you missed today's show, a lot of interesting conversation. We talked about some of the disturbing comments on social media, things being said about the premier. What's the legal threshold for some of those comments to be considered threats, to be considered actionable by the police? We delved into that. Also, a lot of conversation about Calgary's cycle tracks and new data suggests it is being used. But is that enough to change people's minds on the cycle track and enough to make it a permanent feature of downtown Calgary? You can catch us weekdays. 930 to 12:30 right here on News Talk 770 and newstalk770.com. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Friend and colleague Roger Kincaid enjoying a few days off. I'll be back with us uh, a week from today. Uh, the number to reach us 974-8255. You can text us as well 77 uh, We're going to talk about the cycle track later in this hour. Seems more people are using it. But does that mean that it's working? Right? How do we measure the success of the cycle track? And uh, have people's positions changed, um, given the experience we've had with it thus far? We'll talk about that later in the hour. By the way, I wanted to mention this. Someone sent us a text. Uh, heads up for drivers, there is a moose along Stony Trail, westbound to Glenmore, to northbound Stony Offram. Looks lost, Will says. <laughs> Presumably, yeah. Uh, but yikes, that's uh, that's a frightening thing to see if you're a motorist. The funny thing is, in all the times I've been to like Banff, never seen, never seen a moose. The only time I've actually seen a moose was one morning driving my kid to a hockey game in Didsbury, and there are three moose running right along the side of the road just when you pulled into Didsbury. The only time I've ever seen a moose. But uh, I guess uh, if you travel along Stony Trail near Glenmore there, uh, watch out. There's uh, a moose on the loose. So we appreciate that, Will. Uh, again, uh, text us 77770. More time to read uh, some of your text. Obviously, we talked about uh, Rachel Notley, her speech to party supporters uh, on, on Saturday, defending their records, uh, defending the decisions they've made in 2015, and talking about where things are going heading into 2016. Uh, look, obviously, they've made some controversial decisions. Maybe part of the strategy is to get some of those decisions out of the way uh, and hope that, that some of that, that anger subsides by the next election. I don't think they, they bargained on Bill 6 being as controversial as it was, generating the kind of backlash it did. I, I think they handled that very poorly. That said, though, and we talked about this Friday, some of the reaction has gone over the top, has gone too far. You know, it's one thing to to not like what the government's doing. It's one thing to criticize the, their policies. It's one thing to say that I don't want this person as my premier. I think she's doing a terrible job. That's political discourse. That's the right we have as as uh, citizens of this country to criticize those in power, to say they're doing a lousy job, uh, to go out and hold a rally and gather with other people who feel the same thing, to stand up and say, we don't like what you're doing. We think you're taking the province in the wrong direction. Some of what we've been seeing, though, on social media has crossed the line into outright threats. And some of it's pretty disturbing. And it does kind of run the gamut. And maybe you start to get into some legal gray area. 
Someone says, I hope something bad happens to the Premier versus someone saying, let's go make something bad happen to the Premier. For example, on um, uh, CTV Lethbridge, on their Facebook page, someone suggested that, quote, someone's got to man up and kill her, speaking of Rachel Notley. There's another comment that said someone should just put a pitchfork through her neck. Or another one who said just shoot her already. Now, what's even weirder about it, some people are making these these comments anonymously with fake names. That's easy to do online. But, but some of these people are just using their own Facebook profiles. Clearly, police got to take this, this stuff seriously. There are people who are responsible for keeping uh, the premium safe. You know, I think one of the unfortunate consequences of this is that it just it builds up more of a wall between us and our leaders. Makes it less likely that you're going to see the premier, whether it's Rachel Notley or whoever else in the future, less likely that they're going to get out and interact with the public. Less likely they're going to show up at events and, and shake hands and meet with people, or certainly less likely they're going to show up at a rally or a protest and try to have a conversation with people who disagree with what they're doing. This is beyond the pale. There's no place for this. In, in our political discourse. So the question is, what do police need to do about it? What can they do about it? How difficult would it be to go after these people? And even if it might be an obvious case where someone uses his own name and his own Facebook profile and threats, threatens the premier, is it worth it to prosecute that person? Well, joining us for some thoughts on these questions, please to welcome the program, Peter Sankoff. He's a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Now, when it comes to the law and, and uttering threats, is the law pretty clear? The law is actually uh, pretty clear in terms of what it covers and what it doesn't cover. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's easy to prove, or that doesn't mean that we can get all the types of circumstances that you're dealing with. But I think uh, this is one of those areas where the law actually is fairly clear in what it prohibits a person from doing. Now, is there a difference between saying, I'm going to go put a bullet in so-and-so's head versus I sure hope somebody puts a bullet in so-and-so's head. Well, I mean, neither of those actually, the way you say it, amounts to what we classically consider to be a threat. Um, so we've got to be careful about what we're talking about just to begin with because, I mean, the amount of people who saying something that constitutes the potential of a crime, because obviously if that person carried it out would be a crime, mm-hmm. doesn't make it a threat. The idea of a threat is that the threat has to actually be intended to compel somebody else to do something or intended that the person would take it seriously. And those are the two key elements of a threat. So in terms of the way you've phrased it to me, I don't really think there's a key distinction, but in in terms of you could theoretically go after either incidents, but it's always the more um, the more conditional or open-ended the threat is, the more difficult it is to show that it was actually a threat. Yeah, so I mean, so vague statements saying, boy, I hope something awful happens to that person. Boy, I hope that person gets hit by a bus on his way to work tomorrow. That, that's not really a threat. That, that's not a threat at all. Right. I mean, those sorts of things. They, they, I, I should, you know, before I, I sometimes worry that I'm coming off as, you know, soft on these things. The no, fact that these things are not good, people exactly. shouldn't be saying that. That's, I'm just talking about what, what's actually criminal. So as you've described it, that's correct. It wouldn't constitute a threat. And by the way, one other thing I should add is you're talking about a threat. The other offense we should be looking at that really falls into this, sometimes the way you're describing it is more like what we call counseling an offense than an actual threat. Mm-hmm, because a right. threat is, I'm going to do this, or I, I'm going you know, to kill you or do this. But if you're talking to other people saying, go and do this, we're actually talking about counseling. And that, that's a different crime, but there, there is still a legal threshold there. That, that could Correct. constitute... 
criminal action of another kind. Correct. And the way you've just put it, I hope somebody goes out and does something. That could constitute counseling in the right sort of circumstances. But again, I mean, the the nature, again, the more open-ended and vague it is, the more difficult it is to prove counseling. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there was a case, and this goes back to, to I think, 2009. Uh, there was an individual who was convicted of, of uttering threats against then-Premier uh, Ed Stelmack, and and his threat, as I understand at the time, I mean, it was it was very clear. He made a call to the premier's office. He made it very clear what he intended to do uh, to Ed Stelmack's farm and to Ed Stelmack personally. Uh, so the case was pretty clear cut, and, and the judge even said so in his ruling. But it's not often we see those kinds of prosecutions brought against somebody. How much? How, how difficult is it to to bring one of these cases forward? It's hard, and the reason it's hard in this particular context deals with uh, the the nature of where the threat or the so-called threat, because I guess that's the issue, is it a threat, Mm -hmm. um, is actually taking place. And I guess the hardest part is the, the mental component that's required, because you and I can look at this and we can say, well, it looks like a threat. And that's only part of the equation. The hard part is that any threat must be made knowingly. And the word knowingly is, uh, in law, a really high threshold. And that threshold relates to the fact that the person making the threat has to have the intention that it be taken seriously or that it be made in order to intimidate. And what I think makes it difficult in these circumstances, especially with online uh, comments of this nature, is that the, the you know the person is going to argue that they were blowing off steam mm-hmm. or they weren't saying this seriously because if you think about it people say things like that in, in non-online forums all the time you know I'm going to kill you you know it doesn't necessarily mean I am going to kill you. Uh, somebody might get angry and blow off steam. And at the end of the day, that doesn't mean that you can prove the intention that they wanted that threat to be taken seriously. And to contrast with the example that you gave, that's an extremely precise threat. It was delivered in a manner, uh, in the manner of delivery, it was delivered to the recipient of the threat. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not nearly as difficult to assume that it was intended to be taken seriously. So how have the courts tended to view this? Do, do they tend to give leeway to people in those arguments you mentioned about, you know, just, just blowing off steam, et cetera? I, I don't think leeway is the right point. Uh, it's not really about leeway. It's a question of whether or not they had a reasonable doubt. And when you're judging, when you're trying to uh, decide whether or not it's worthy to prosecute in these instances, there's no question that the police and the Crown prosecutors are going to be looking at the context in which these statements are made. Because it's very different. You can, you can prosecute somebody and convict them on a simple, I'm going to kill you, mm-hmm. so long as you're able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, that person intended that it be taken seriously or was attempting to intimidate. The difficulty here here is, my guess is, in every case of these online uh, forums, what you're going to have is this sort of steady buildup of more and more aggressive threats, right? And the person reading them, all they have to do is say, well, I was just, you know, I was angry. I wasn't really intending anybody to take this seriously. It was an online forum. That doesn't mean they'll be believed, but all they have to do is raise a reasonable doubt. And I think that's what makes it difficult for, you know, the police and ultimately the prosecution to actually launch charges of this type. Right. Now, there, there's also the risk, I suppose. Uh, I mean, look, if someone's committed a crime, they've committed a crime. But, but by bringing a case against somebody, almost making somebody a, a martyr, uh, you know, giving that, that that kind of attention, does that factor into a decision as to whether to prosecute? I'm sure it factors in a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, when they're 
when they're trying to decide whether or not they should go forward with charges of this type, they think about what's in the public interest. And there's no question that it's not always in the public interest to pursue these types of things. But, I mean, to be clear, I do think the police should be investigating. When you've got mm-hmm. threats like the ones you mentioned, there's no question that they should investigate this. They should look into the people who are making these claims. And by all means, if there's surrounding evidence that is, is troublesome and shows that the claims might have been made with the intention to intimidate the government or to, you know, uh, uh, have them be taken seriously, then I think they, they, they should certainly launch charges and that wouldn't dissuade them from doing so. Right. As, as sort of a, a starting point that uh, to begin to gather evidence, this person has said some disturbing things on Facebook. Maybe that's somebody we should keep an eye on. Absolutely. I think uh, an investigation, when you've got specific threats of the ones, and that's where I think the distinction you've made is relevant. When we're talking about the specific threats, like the pitchfork in the neck, and we're talking about that, and, you know, I hope someone does something bad to this person, there is a distinction there. And I do think it's worthy to examine uh, the the actual person and what they're capable of doing. And at that point, it wouldn't be surprising to me or impossible to actually prosecute successfully an online threat. You can do it. It's just more challenging than other types of threats that are more direct to the person getting them. Yeah, um, but I mean, look, there, there's an obligation. It's, it's, it's a difficult balance for police, isn't there? Because you've outlined the challenges in prosecuting these cases, uh, but they still, it would look bad on police if they were seen to just be ignoring it, all of it outright. So there, there, there's, is there a fine line they need to walk then? Well, to be honest, I don't think they should be ignoring it uh, outright. And I think at the end of the day, they're, they're, Nobody wants, or I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people want to be investigated by the police either. And it no. seems to me that the police, it, it's, it's when you've, when this has created a public stir, and it's clearly something that I think, as you pointed out, has crossed beyond the pale of polite political discourse or even impolite political discourse. I think it's up to the police to investigate. And sometimes those investigations are enough to shut down these type of people in the first place. Nobody wants a visit from police uh, where they're being questioned about the nature of their activities and what they're thinking. And I think at at that point, it's up to the police to actually, uh, they have good grounds to investigate and they can gather information potentially or dissuade those people from making those types of comments further. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, uh, maybe they think they're just, you know, making a a political point. Point, to get that phone call from the police to say, you know, we, we noticed what you said online that could possibly be construed as a threat. Um, don't do that. that. That might be more than enough to dissuade a lot of people. Absolutely. And in, in the right sort of case, again, it, I don't know what the reaction from that person is going to be, but depending on what the reaction is and depending what the police are able to, to dig up, further investigative means might be warranted. I mean, you, you could get a search warrant. You can actually look at what this person is doing and whether or not these threats have the potential to become something more serious. The making of an online threat of a, of a very serious nature is certainly good grounds to investigate further. And as I said, in some cases, you're talking about a case where they're just going to dissuade the person, and that'll probably be the end of that. And in other cases, maybe they will discover a bit more, and maybe that is the type of person that's worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Peter, great insight. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us here Thank this morning. Thank you very Appreciate much. Appreciate this. All right, Peter Sankoff is a professor of law at the University of Alberta. So some thoughts from him on, on what, what the law entails. There, there are a few different laws here, as he said. It, there, there's obviously uttering a threat. That's Section 264 of the Criminal Code. Everyone who commits an offense... Everyone commits an offense who, in any matter, knowingly utters, conveys, or causes any person to receive a threat. A threat to cause death or bodily harm to any person, to burn, destroy, or damage real or personal property, or to kill, poison, or injure an animal animal or bird that is the property of any person. That's an indictable offense. So that's uttering a threat. 
There was also uh, another section of the criminal code that deals with uh, threatening parliament or a legislature, that everyone who does an act of violence in order to intimidate parliament or the legislature of a province is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. And Peter also mentioned uh, another section of the criminal code, making it a crime to counsel others to commit a crime. And so that could apply to some of these comments. So surely police are aware of this, and I think they've made it pretty clear that they're they're aware of these comments, they're looking into these comments. Whether anything more comes of that remains to be seen. Right? It would have to be a, a clear-cut case. No ambiguity about what the person intended. And as Peter said, it's it's pretty easy for somebody to go to court and say, look, I obviously didn't mean that. I was blowing off steam. And I was angry. I was hot-headed. I got online. It was just it was me venting, and that's all it was. Never had any intention of, of doing anything. So the police would have to have a pretty strong case against somebody, and it's it's obviously quite likely that most of these people are not going to be charged. Now, they may get a phone call from the police. They may have someone come knock on their door. And maybe that'll be enough to convince a lot of people that, gee, you know, maybe I ought to think twice about what I'm putting on social media. Because a lot of it is pretty disturbing. Now, somebody texted to say, look, you know, Stelmac, uh, Klein, they got these threats. They had to increase security. Absolutely. I'm not saying that this was unique to Rachel Nolly or that it's never happened before. We mentioned the case of the guy who went to jail for threatening against Stelmac. So, yeah, it's it's happened before. I think it's it's a little different now with the way social media is. Maybe we're we're seeing more of it. Maybe in the past, maybe twenty years ago, you know, where where were these people going to vent? Where were these people going to put these kinds of remarks? There wasn't that kind of public forum for this stuff. Now it's all out there. Now we all see it, and it is pretty disturbing. There's no need for it. It's unacceptable. And and again, kudos to those uh, political opponents of Rachel Notley who are calling this stuff out, saying how awful this is. Brian Jean did that, and, and others have done so, and unfortunately, it needs to be said. Let's take a break here. When to come back, a bit of time for your calls here before the bottom of the hour. 974-8255 is our telephone number. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. That's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Roger Kincaid uh, off for a few more days. 974-8255 is our number. Text us, 770-770. I suspect there might be some reaction to this next conversation because every time this comes up, uh, there's a ton of reaction. So it's a polarizing issue. That much is clear. Talking about the cycle track. This pilot project uh, downtown to build this this cycle track network uh, to make it easier for people to get in and out of downtown on their bicycles. And I suppose to encourage more people to make that choice. Right, so there, there's, there's at, at the essence of it, I suppose, that, that question of, is the city trying to create demand for this? Or is the city responding to demand? Right, is it a case of people wanting to ride bikes to get downtown because it's difficult to drive, expensive to park, and so we're making it easier for those people who want to do so? Or is it the city's way of trying to convince people to make that change, to, to ride in, into downtown? So we're trying this out. We're trying this cycle track, I guess, to, to see if, if it works, how many people use it, what the impact is on parking, what the impact is on commuting, and what the impact is on, on businesses along the cycle track. And we got some, some preliminary numbers last week 
uh, tabled at, at City Hall, at City Council, uh, that suggests that, in fact, um, it is drawing a lot of riders. The complaints are down, the 311 complaints about the cycle track. But we look more specifically at it. You know, certain sections uh, of the cycle track seem to be more popular than others. Still not all businesses are on board with it. So how do we measure the success, and what are we seeing thus far? Uh, Tom Babin uh, is a producer with the Calgary Heralds. Uh, he's the author of Frostbite, The Joy and Pain uh, and Numbness, The Joy, Pain, and Numbness of Winter Cycling. Uh, and he's been following this debate very closely. Tom, thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. So what do you see in these numbers last week? Well, I think the thing that uh, struck me um, was that the uh, the cycle tracks seemed to be doing exactly what was promised. I mean, they're drawing more people. Um, they're getting different kinds of people on bikes, um, and people are are using them. So, you know, it, it didn't seem to be a huge story one way or the other. I mean, it didn't seem to be a destroyer of downtown. It didn't seem to be a, create a bicycle utopia, but it does seem to be making a bit of change, and that's uh, that was what the promise was when this thing got started. Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, the goal was to, to get more people cycling, and, and there were some targets for certain portions of this. Now, I understand that, that some portions of the cycle track are actually seeing numbers well above the targets, but there are some portions that are a little below target. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, um, the data is all very interesting. It's all new. I mean, one of the big complaints when this thing first started was the lack of data we had on this kind of thing, and now we're sort of swimming in it. So I think we're seeing a better sense of how people are using the cycle tracks uh, where they're using them, where they're going with them, uh, and, I, and I see maybe it's anecdotally a difference between the you know the 12th Avenue one through the Beltline and the ones through downtown. You know the downtown ones are real commuter tracks, whereas the 12th Avenue ones I think you're seeing uh, being used very well because there's people who actually live there and are using them to get you know get through their neighborhood. So mm-hmm. we're learning it as we go. Um, also the uh, you know, I hear from cyclists all the time or who are, you know, most of them seem to like the cycle tracks, but they're also complaining that they don't connect very well. And I think that's true. They don't really hook up to the paths around downtown. You know, it sort of ends in weird spots. Uh, so, you know, these probably accounts for some of the, uh, some of the lower, uh, the areas of lower use, but uh, it's nice to see these numbers. At least we're seeing, at least we're learning something about it. It is. Now, what do we make of the fact that, that certainly, you know, over the last few weeks, last few months even, um, it, you know, the, the weather here has been fair, it's been mild, uh, haven't had a lot of snow yet, so all, all of that's conducive to, to cycling. But once we get into some cold and snowy months, what are we expecting to see? Well, that's one of the things I'm really keeping an eye on, especially I'm the guy who wrote a book about riding oh, a bike in winter, so I'm interested to see. Um, what we've seen in other cities is that when uh, bike infrastructure is well-maintained through the winter, if it's cleared, if it's uh, if it's safe, um, uh, and people use it, you know, not up to the standards we'll see in the summertime, not up to the numbers you see in the summer, but in some of the great cities you're seeing 30%, 40% of people use it year-round. And, um, you know, considering the city seems to be doing uh, a pretty good job, well, so far they haven't had much of a challenge, but they seem committed to clearing this thing. So I'd be looking at numbers in that area, which I think is pretty impressive. I mean, you can see other cities that uh, uh, don't clear it, clear snow, and don't maintain them in the winter. Um, 
and those numbers can fall down to 10, 20% of what they are in the summertime. So it does make a difference. The numbers will be lower. But I also think, and this is a big, you know, I'm always talking about this too, I also think our perceptions of winter, especially in Calgary, are sometimes out of whack. We, we tend to remember those really cold, uh, snowy days in the minus 40s. But, you know, it's most days uh, are not like that. You know, I, I think we are having a mild winter so far, but it's not that unusual. You know, I think last year we had maybe two or three days that were minus 30. Um, maybe it was even one. Um, you know, the average temperature in, in the winter in Calgary is like minus 8. So it really isn't as harsh as people think it is. And, and what we see in Calgary is a lot of really committed cyclists who, who ride no matter what the temperature is. So what we want to see with the cycle tracks is people who are not those hardcore uh, riders, you know, just the more casual ones who will ride. Uh, and maybe the cycle tracks will help extend their season, their riding season, a little bit longer. Now, what about uh, snow clearance? Uh, how much of a priority are, are the cycle track lanes, and, and does that add to the cost of the pilot project, or is that factored in? Yeah, I just met with the, a guy from the city recently uh, who is in charge of plowing these things. And, you know, they're, they're, the cycle tracks all happen to fall on priority one routes, so they're going to be cleared at the same rate as all priority one routes. Uh, they seem, the city seems to be getting better at clearing them. They've got some equipment that works now. They're able to better use uh, the equipment they do have. They don't need any, a whole lot of special gear. Uh, so they're able to do a much more efficient job. You know, when the first 7th Street one opened a few years ago, they had hired a contractor to do it, and it cost a fortune. So I'm happy to see that they've figured out how to do it using city staff, and they seem to be doing a better job. So is it is it cost? Yeah, it costs money. It, it's more expensive uh, to keep uh, cycling open here than it would be in, uh, I don't know, Davis, California, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but it depends how you look at it, too. You know, I, I tend to think that we've invested in this infrastructure, and if we're serious about it, we should keep it going year-round. You know, uh, we see a number of people using it. The numbers are not going to be as high as they are in the summer. But, you know, as, as a cyclist, as someone who rides year-round, uh, the, the need for safety is increased in winter. You know, it doesn't go away. I actually need it more in the wintertime. So I'm really uh, happy to see that they're committed to it. And, uh, you know, we'll see how they do. They haven't had a real challenge yet, so it'll be interesting to yeah. see. Well, you know, and look, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it's a polarizing debate. I get yeah. the sense that there are some people who not like the cycle track no matter what. But I don't know. Does the same thing apply to proponents that, that you would like the cycle track no matter what this data tells us? Or, or would there be circumstances under which you would say, look, I like the idea, but, you know, it turns out it didn't work out? Yeah, I think so. You're right about it being polarizing and, and needlessly so, I think. Um, uh, yeah, there are some people, I think we've had instances here where we've put in bike infrastructure and it doesn't work. And so it comes out again. And if this truly is a pilot project, um, I'd like to see it being tweaked along the way. If uh, one of the sections is not working, let's fix it or let's get rid of it. You know, in, in, in bringing the cycle track in, we took out a bike lane on 10th Avenue, um, um, because we had a new cycle track on 12th that was sort of parallel to it. So, you know, this is a good thing. I think this shows that, there's, you know, we should be doing this kind of thing. Um, I don't love all bike infrastructure. You know, the city puts money into what we call sharrows. Those, those are shared right-of-ways. This is when they put a bike paint down on the street and then call it a day, and right. I don't think that does anything for anyone, you know. So, you know, yeah, I, uh, there are, I'm sure there are some people who are going to say this is great no matter what. Uh, I'd like to think I'm not one of them. <laughs> you know, if it's working, great. Uh, if not, then let's fix it. Let's figure out what's going to go on. This is an ongoing process, I think, too. Uh, the, same, the same way transportation is for all modes, you know, for transit and all these kinds of things. You're adjusting bus routes constantly. I think this is probably the, the right approach. Okay. Well, yeah, and I mean, the city is going to wait until next fall, so there's still a lot more time to gather this data. But if the data in a year looks like it does today, then that, you think, is a pretty strong case for keeping these? Well, I would say so. You know, there's some, still some holes in the data. You know, there's a bunch of benchmarks that were set 
for the pilot project, um, one of which was impact on businesses. We don't know what that's like yet. We haven't uh, got a report back on that yet. Um, uh, commute times, uh, we have a preliminary data on how it's uh, affected commute. So it has slowed uh, car traffic. You know, I think it was something between 60 and 90 seconds uh, during rush hour. Um, I, I guess we have to decide if that's a reasonable thing to ask of people driving their cars. So we have, uh, we need some more information. Uh, before we make a final decision. But, you know, as far as uh, people riding, you know, it's getting more women out there, which is uh, a good thing um, because women tend to be uh, more afraid uh, of riding with uh, beside cars, so getting more people. We're getting, you know, anecdotally, I see out there more people riding, uh, you know, who are not dressed like cyclists. And they're, you know, they're wearing their regular clothes. Um, they're just, it uh, looks like they're just heading to work wearing their business suits or their skirts and that kind of thing. I think that's probably a sign that they're doing what they want to do. You know, cycle tracks, I always, uh, they always say cycle tracks are not for cyclists. I mean, they're not for those guys in Lycra who are riding 20 kilometers downtown in a minus 20 day. They're really for people who uh, are afraid to ride normally, and this gives them an opportunity to do that. So, uh, you know, the more people like that I see, the more encouraged I am that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, as you say, I mean, we got the pass that... If you if you live near downtown, you know, we've got the path infrastructure to get you right right to the edge of downtown. And so now it's I guess it's figuring out what what can we have in place within the downtown that connects to all of that. It, you know the point you made about maybe a lack of connection between the cycle track and some of those paths. Maybe that's that's something we need to address. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're driving the fifth the the, the fifth street track, which goes down the uh, below the underpass, you know those underpasses were totally deadly on a bike before, and I heard from people all the time who saying they didn't even want to try it. So to give a connection like that is great. Um, but now you ride it, and it goes up towards the belt line, towards 17th Avenue, and then it just stops. It basically just uh, sort of abandons you to your own. It doesn't really connect. You know, it's it, logically, if it went about three or four more blocks, it would connect to the to the Elbow River pathway. So you could have all these people coming from southwest Calgary. They would have a pathway to get them there, and then they would have a cycle track um, that would get them right downtown and hopefully right down to their office. So, yeah, there's these connections that need to be made still. I mean, these things always need to be improved. Um, that's going to be a challenge because there's some one-way streets that switch to two-way streets, so it's not going to be easy to do it. But, you know, all these little all these little connections make a big deal. And in Calgary, where we have such a great pathway network, you know, that's one of the big challenges we face, I think, is making those connections. We've got, like, a good, a good structure, uh, good bones for infrastructure, but we really need to make those connections, which will make a huge difference for people on bikes. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes from here. Tom, in the meantime, uh, folks in reach at calgaryherald.com, and we mentioned your book as well, Frostbike, The Joy, Pain, and Numbness of Winter Cycling. Thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Tom Babin uh, with the Calgary Herald, uh, author of Frostbike. So, Look, there's a cycling proponent. Obviously, as he said, he's, he's he's supportive of the cycle track. He likes what he sees in these numbers. But says, you know, I'd like to think that I'm a objective enough guy that if it wasn't working, I'd say it's not working. And I guess regardless of what side you're on, you could probably cherry pick some of these numbers. Uh, as the Calgary Sun lays it out on Friday, uh, the 5th Street southwest portion sees 950 riders a day using it, north of 5th Ave. The target was 800, so it's above target there. Uh, but that same road on 5th Street, north of 15th Ave, only, is only seeing about 480 riders a day. The target was 700. On the 12th Ave route, attracting uh, 720 riders. That's west of 8th Street. That's ahead of the 600 target. Uh, but west of 3rd Street in the southeast, the target was 700, only seeing about 210 riders a day. So well below the target there. As Tom mentioned, uh, female ridership is up. There was a target set of having 25%. Female ridership, it's at about, uh, it's over 30% on a lot of the routes. So that's above target there. 
So this is the kind of data that city council is gathering. They're going to evaluate all of it next fall and, and make a decision on whether the cycle track becomes permanent. I think there are a lot of those who were skeptical about whether this really was a pilot project, uh, that maybe the fix was in from the beginning. We have this. We're going to keep it. I don't know. I, I like to think that city council is going to keep an open mind, and they're going to review this and make a decision based on, on the evidence. So is there anything here that persuades you, if you were skeptical about the cycle track to begin with, to say, well, you know, people seem to be using it. Maybe it's working. 974-8255. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, well, Vince, uh, you'll be up first. We'll get some more of your calls. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge News Talk 770, talking about the cycle track. Some preliminary data suggests that at least some parts of the cycle track are exceeding the targets. They're getting uh, more ridership than they expected. Now, maybe to some people that, that doesn't matter, that there was never a need for it, that it was too much money to spend, regardless of whether they exceed their targets or not. I mean, that was part of the, the case against it. Others felt that, uh, well, let's see what the numbers tell us. Then we'll decide. So what do we make of it so far? And does it change how you view uh, the, this, this whole experiment, right? Which theoretically is a pilot project anyway. Uh, as I said, we got Vince on the line here. Vince, go ahead. How are you doing today, Rob? Real good. Good, good, good. Um, I'm sort of coming out from a driver's perspective. I actually take 12th Avenue every day to work here and all that stuff since those cycle tracks have been in. And I just actually ruined, and I mean ruined, my the flow of traffic and my times getting to work here because how they set up the tracks on 12th Avenue, you got to dart over, and then you got to come back over, and then you got to come yeah. back over, and they basically took a valuable lane. And the same thing on uh, 8th Avenue, too, coming out of downtown. Because now you only got one inbound lane and one outbound lane, and I see traffic build up there every day. And my second point is, is I was just wondering uh, why, especially with an organization like QR77, why the roads are getting more a little more attention, namely uh, Deerfoot Trail and uh, Crow Child Trail. What do you mean getting more attention? Well, getting more attention to the plate of motorists sitting up there uh, for like two kilometer backups every day on Crow Child Trail, yet uh, the cycle tracks seem to be getting a little more attention than the road, especially the choke points, Deerfoot Trail, Crow Child Trail. Okay. More well, trail, I don't know. I mean, I, I, so forth. We well, I never hear about that. You know, I'm pretty much almost a daily listener, so yeah. a lot of guys at work. And, uh, yeah, I never hear about the roads okay. or motorists. All right. No, fair enough, Vince. I mean, I think certainly that stuff matters to people. I, I, there's been a lot of talk a lot lately about Crowchild in particular and what we can do to improve uh, Crowchild and, and help the flow of traffic there. Someone else uh, agrees here, says, you know, the city needs to worry about the Deerfoot. So why do we worry about the few who want to ride bikes versus the many who are in cars? Yeah, that, that's fair. But look, I mean, this cycle track uh, has been a controversial issue. People react to this, and, and part of the frustration then maybe is that we're, we're doing this and not pursuing the, you know, the, these other traffic problems in Calgary. I get that. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people complaining about 12th Ave in particular, that uh, you, know, you take a lane away and you're really going to affect the flow of traffic. Now, Tom Babin said the, the impact on traffic has been minimal, that it has added to, to some commutes, but it's, it's been minimal. But, I mean, that's that's kind of an average. So, yeah, there's certain parts of the day where the commute's going to be more negatively impacted than, than others. And I think the hope is that in the long run, you get more people out of cars, and therefore it all comes out in the wash. 
you got fewer people in cars, so even if you lose a lane, you got fewer cars to begin with. Uh, so traffic's fine, and you got more people on bikes, and everybody wins. That's a bit of a Pollyannish view of this. I think people are going to... There, there's a limit, I think, to how many people you can get out of cars and, and onto bikes. Now, if you live close enough to downtown that biking's an option where, you know, it's probably too much of a walk, but a realistic cycle. So you got the options of taking public transit, driving and parking or, or riding your bike. And to a lot of people, biking's an attractive option. And there probably are people out there who say, you know what, I'm close enough to downtown. It'd be cheaper, cheaper for me to bike. I'm worried about riding downtown and having something like a cycle track probably is appealing to a lot of people who are on the fence. I just, I don't know how significant those, those numbers are. And is it, is it enough that it justifies the cost and the impact of, of having these cycle track lanes? So, hey, you know, I used to have to drive in and out of downtown every day. We moved out of downtown. I drive past downtown, wave as I go past. I'm glad I don't have to drive in and out of downtown each day. And so I guess I'm no longer directly impacted by this. I'm far enough away from, from work that riding my bike's not an option. And my colleague Angela rides her bike every day. And, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a short ride either, but Angela's a trooper. Uh, so yeah, so um, if you gotta drive in and out of downtown, I get the headache. And especially if you're on, on, you know, like 12th Ave in particular, this is impacting you. I get that. Let's go back to the phones that we got, uh, Chad up next. Chad, go ahead. Hi, I would just uh, really like for them to obey the laws of the road. That's what really burns me. Well, you mean cyclists um, in general? You mean those using the cycle track? Those cyclists in general, but specifically the ones using the cyclist track. I'll, I'll explain why. One, uh, I was actually this morning, so it's kind of funny that you're talking about this today. Um, I'm turning off of 5th onto 10th downtown Calgary, okay. or on the Beltline, and there's the cycling track on my left side. And there's a sign in front of me that says, I have to yield to oncoming cyclists. Well... You know what? If it was a car, I'm signaling. Um, you, you know, there's, there's laws of the road that's, uh, that would dictate, you know, make sure that you're, you're taking the proper precautions. Unfortunately, that bike lane is on my left side, so I'm paying attention to make sure there's no bikes coming in, uh, head on. And I go to turn, and the bike goes zooming by me on the left side that I almost hit him. He turns around and gives me the bird and, and takes off. And I'm like, you know, that guy on the left side should be yielding to me. Because, you know, they, they come up fast. It's at a bad intersection. You can't really see them. So they, they really don't obey the laws. The next thing is uh, when I left my meeting this morning, I'm turning back on the 4th off of 10th, mm -hmm. and the guy's driving his bike, comes off of the, um, the cycle track, and cuts across on the crosswalk. So I'm like, okay, you're a motor vehicle. According to the Motor Vehicle Act, you have to, first of all, you should be wearing a helmet and proper protective gear, and second of all, you should be obeying the laws of the road. So, and it's more so not for the fact that these guys are breaking the law in any way. It's, it's for the people that are going to hit these people. And one day it's going to happen. One of these guys is going to get hit, and they're going to die. And it's going to be sad, but what's going to be even worse is the person that hit them is going to have to live with the fact that they've taken somebody's life because they, that cyclist didn't take the time to obey the laws of the road or wear the pop, proper personal safety equipment. And I can't believe the city hasn't brought that up yet. Okay. Fair point, Chad. Appreciate the phone call. we got to take a quick break here. Back with more right after this.